to the Mint's podcast series, In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth Stage Companies. Today's session is on ESG in the boardroom. Few topics are generating more interest than environmental, social, and corporate governance topics in boardrooms around the country. I'm Steve Osborne. I'm a private company lawyer in our Silicon Valley office, and I'm joined here with three of my colleagues, Melanie Levy, Capital Markets Lawyer in our San Diego office, Tom Burton, who is the chair of our clean energy and sustainability practice from our Boston office, and Kristen Noet, who has recently joined us and her practice centers on environmental, social, and corporate governance. She's advising clients on all aspects of ESG, including on how to build programs, implement them, what are the regulatory trends, disclosure requirements, and all of the things that we're getting asked by our clients. For years, there's a feeling that maybe some of the clients are ahead of the law firms when it comes to leading on ideas like environmental, social, and corporate governance. And with adding Kristen to our already long track record of being ahead of trends, Mintz is really putting themselves in a position to help our clients as their partner to drive forward best practices and really practical implementation of the ESG concept. So, Kristen, welcome to the podcast and welcome to the Mints. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy to have joined uh, the Mints team and working on building out our ESG practice even further. Mints is very well positioned in the ESG space, given the track record and long history in energy and sustainability, workplace and other initiatives. That's great. And just tell our audience, for those who are not intimately familiar what, what exactly is ESG? Sure. ESG is a set of operational and impact considerations for companies. There's a long list of environmental, social, and governance factors. On the environmental side, it's really focused on responsible resource stewardship. It includes climate change, sustainability, energy efficiency, water and land use, air and water pollution, biodiversity, and waste management. On the social side, really looking at the impacts on employees, communities, and society. The social factors include diversity, equity, and inclusion, human rights, labor standards, workplace culture, social and racial justice, community impact, and stakeholder engagement. You also often see anti-bribery and corruption and whistleblower policies under social impacts, as well as political advocacy and action. And then the governance factors are wholly consumed by the management and oversight on behalf of the board and management. And you're looking at kind of policies and procedures, risk management, compliance and audit, ethics, executive compensation, and the transparency around those factors. So I had a question. So we, when we talk about or, or do this podcast, we talk about companies of all sizes. It could be a guy maybe in his garage who has a great idea and he's just starting a company. And then also we talk about boards who are members or, or whose companies are revenue is hundreds of millions of dollars, commercialized products. They're publicly traded under a high level of scrutiny underneath, you know, institutional shareholder services, which are kind of like the police force, I guess, if you'll say, over um, corporate governance. So when should a company start thinking about ESG in its life cycle? Sure. You know, it's really, it depends on the industry and it depends on the corporate structure. 
I would say. So uh, actually speaking of corporate structure, we, we just came off of our, our session relating to committees. And one of the things that you know I've begun to see evolve, um, Kristen, in our practice is that when businesses first became aware of environmental, for example, environmental concerns, we'll, we'll focus on the E and ESG because that's what we tend to see on a daily basis. Uh, many, many companies would consider whether they should be forming a separate committee um, in order to manage and mitigate risks around environmental concerns, climate change, et cetera. That is shifting. And so uh, we'd love to get your perspective on what you consider to be best practices. I know we've talked about it in the past and and you know, we share a view here at Mintz um, and think it's important that you can give us uh, some of that perspective. Sure. Thanks, Tom. I think that you know our best practice recommendation is you know to to look at the existing kind of governance structure and the, the corporate committee structure. You know, typically see committees grouped into audit, nominating governance, and compensation. And because ESG are, are operating principles, it makes best sense to build processes and oversight within each of those committee structures of ESG, and that also lends itself to kind of best corporate governance in terms of, you know, defining the scope of board responsibilities and the board reporting procedure for, for ESG issues. You know, other best practices certainly include, you know, potentially annual board training, looking at kind of the ESG program and strategy and refreshing that to ensure alignment with business goals. And there are a host of other checklist items for, for board governance an annual board refresh is a good time to assess the oversight of ESG issues um, in the committee structure and alignment around the ESG oversight. Yeah, and I like to think you know when you look at you know the, the audit committee, for example, you know that you know that committee is built really you know for purposes of uh, risk management around those uh, reporting requirements uh, on the financial side, and it's uh, similar requirements are potentially underway through SEC proposals on, on climate and on emissions and reporting. And that to me is the, the home where you can actually ensure that, you know, a company is uh, properly assessing, uh, mitigating and reporting on those risks. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll likely see with the, the impending SEC climate disclosure rule, a shift and an expanded focus of both the audit and governance committees for public companies along the lines of, of what you said, Tom, that audit function will need to expand to incorporate the expanded climate reporting disclosures. And the governance committee as well will have to take on new responsibilities for compliance with the rule, given, at least in the proposed rule, the narrative board governance and oversight requirements that it, it proposes. That's a good segue to talk a little bit about what are the requirements for ESG, where are those requirements coming from, and and how we think about compliance uh, in addition to the, the oversight and management benefits of, of having an ESG program. But but where are the where are the requirements coming from? Can you help us understand that a little bit better? I think they do have an in- interesting history, Kristen. At least if you looked at the last legislative session, there was um, in 2020, 2021, an attempt by Congress to really granularly mandate what many people called the ESG disclosures. And I believe it failed the Senate by one vote. It was an incredibly controversial, <laughs> controversial law um, that was sort of 
divided and, and support for it was divided between Republicans and Democrats, you know, on different sides. But I think, Kristen, what you mentioned, which is really important and many people may not realize, is that even though that didn't ultimately become law, the climate disclosures, which are actually incredibly complicated, did make it through. And um, so I'd be interested to hear what you think about those and how that's going to impact particularly reporting season this season. Sure. Yeah, it's an interesting time and it's an exciting time in, in ESG for you know, many of us have been involved for a long time. You know, I worked on the Kyoto Protocol, which was kind of the first foray into climate change oversight back in, in the mid-90s. And we're now at our 27th annual UN Framework Convention on Climate Change meeting. This has been a watershed year for ESG climate sustainability initiatives. We've seen the SEC propose the climate disclosure rule. It's ex- we're expected to have the final rule by year's end. That expands on the SEC's initial foray into kind of the climate material risk space in 2010. And then, of course, we've seen the recent passage and signing into law of the Inflation Reduction Act, which in part puts forth a public commitment to fund investments in climate change that it's unprecedented and it's historic in this country. And that's really been the, a missing piece, I'd say, for the United States to move forward to meet our climate change goals. And it's, it's very interesting and it's well positioned in terms of the timing as we head into November, which again is the 27th meeting of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So the United States will be in the best position that it's, it's been in from a domestic policy perspective on climate. And, and bringing that back to the boardroom, you know, to me, that means that corporate boards have to be really thoughtful about planning ahead in order to be prepared to uh, assess and manage risks around climate and be able to report on those. And, and I think also, you know, we're seeing, and this is spurred by the private equity industry, requirements that portfolio companies prepare and, and issue ESG reports so that they are actually reporting on what it is they're doing relative to climate diversity, you know, and other measures that, you know, are, are important that uh, ultimately, you know, the limited partners of these funds believe will drive value in businesses. So at the end of the day, one of the things that's really critically important to understand is that there's a, there's an underlying belief that by assessing, managing, and reporting on these various metrics, you know, there is a value-driven opportunity here to grow business uh, and to improve profitability. So I don't, I don't want people to, to forget that. So boards are really going to have to think very hard about, you know, how, how they're going to manage that in, in an effort to ultimately, you know, build their companies. And as you said, with the new law, Kristen, the numbers are 300 billion toward climate. You know, uh, that is more than triple the allocation of 2009. And so uh, I think we're going to, um, uh, it is going to be incumbent on boards to, to understand the IRA as well, particularly those that we work with that, that are focused on, on sustainability broadly. Absolutely, Tom. And that's a, it's a great point that the private sector you know, has moved far ahead of public sector regulation in ESG reporting and looking at ESG factors as important to the long-term value of the company. Another factor that companies you know, consider and that boards certainly plan and respond to is stakeholder engagement and stakeholder pressure. We've been talking about you know, the government and, and regulators on the ESG space. But we're also looking at you know, investors, consumers, customers, 
shareholders to some extent. There's tremendous interest in ESG. And over the last probably five years, boards have really kind of shifted their focus to account for and respond to those stakeholder pressures. And it's interesting because one of the stakeholder pressures that really came up, particularly with diversity and things like that, was if you're like, as I, you know, ISS, the sort of the police force responsible for monitoring and issuing voting recommendations for at least public company boards, is what is the standard form of disclosure that should be out there so that this data can be mined, analyzed, and, and things like that. And it, 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 in particular, before like NASDAQ's most recent rule about the diversity matrix and some of the rules that you see about the formulaic disclosure for climate rules and things like that, what I think a lot of times people seem to lose is part of the purpose of those rules and regulations is to allow data to be looked at and pulled from a variety of different companies so that there really can truly be monitoring of that. And it's not so much, to your point, you know, government monitoring. It's really monitoring from the investment community so that if you are a portfolio manager or you're a shareholder advisor, you have a formulaic way of pulling this information and, and checking it so you're not comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges. A proxy statement can be you know, 50 pages long and if data is presented differently or in different pages, it's just very, very difficult to compare to even two companies. So let alone 100 companies or 1,000. So at least for me, I think it's very important. This is where I think council can add a lot of value in knowing what are the disclosures, what are the requirements, what, sh- what columns should be here, and, and things like that, that it's, it's very important. And I think boards should be aware because they are given a scorecard if you're at least a public company board. And the scorecard is I either recommend that stockholders vote for you as a director, or I recommend that the vote be withheld and not you not be voted for. And then the other point I think that you were making, Kristen, is it's also, will I give this company money or will I not? Because now that fund managers are going to have access to this information, it's going to be much easier for them to be able to make an investment decision and put investment criteria in place that say, if there's no, you know, if you have a board of more than five people and there's not two women or two divorced members, we don't invest in you. I think that really puts a lot of pressure, like you had said as well. So it's really interesting. I think that's a great point, Melanie. And we're seeing ESG become a differentiator. And, you know, certainly the focus and goal of what will be the SEC final rule, um, what we've seen on the NASDAQ board diversity rule and similar efforts is on that transparency and that disclosure to assess really how companies are handling some of these ESG topics, climate, diversity, equity, inclusion, reported as human capital management and board diversity. The NASDAQ board diversity rule has recently been challenged in the Fifth Circuit and the California uh, mandates were also challenged and being informed by that decision Potentially going forward, a disclosure approach rather than a mandate approach may be kind of the best model. But I think it's it's really the right time for boards to make sure that they have the right information and the right training on what the requirements are and how best to formulate those disclosures, both in any filing as well as just public reporting and disclosures. For instance, companies that, you know, 
put out ESG or sustainability reports that may post similar information on their website, you know, that should really be looked at with uh, scrutiny now because of how it's being looked at and interpreted by investors and regulators. And there's a question about those reports too, which I think is very interesting and it's, it's sort of yet to really be resolved, but something, you know, we always tell our clients to be careful about, particularly if you're in the business of raising securities or um, soliciting votes or taking those kind of actions is it's important to do the reports, but it's also important to make sure that they're accurate. And so having somebody who is versed in ESG look at that and understand is the information being accurately presented? Because the last thing we want is, is for something to get posted or inadvertently incorporated into something that is used to sell a security and for it to be inaccurate. So it is something that's important to consider as well. Yeah, Melanie, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And that's one of the biggest challenges that is still being worked through, right? Is you know, what, what is the universal or commonly accepted measurement tool in order to measure emissions, for example? And, you know, what scope of the emissions, whether it be one, two, or three, there is not a universal standard. And I don't know that it's the SEC's place to, you know, uh, to promote or to uh, anoint a universal standard. And so it's going to be a pretty tough thing to get through. And what, what's happening is public companies, particularly those in you know, the consumer world where there, there seems to be some bump or benefit, you know, through, you know, the, the common understanding or expectation that going carbon neutral is a positive thing. Um, they're making those carbon neutrality pronouncements, but they don't have any backup yet. They don't know how to prove that they've actually achieved that goal. And, um, and that's part of the reason for the proposed rules. And um, ultimately, in a really critical reason why boards uh, need to have, you know, um, uh, a focus on, on these ESG matters in the boardroom uh, and ultimately down to management because if they don't manage those risks appropriately, the plaintiff's firms will come calling and and it's going to become costly. Absolutely. And, you know, a follow on point to that, Tom, is as companies set commitments, whether it's a net zero commitment or on, you know, on water use, on waste reduction, whatever that is, the implementation of that and the progress against, against those targets, the metrics that, is something that boards need to be informed on and and regularly updated as well. To the extent that companies don't have like internal policies and procedures and controls in place in that kind of like emissions and implementation like reporting scheme, that's something that we'll, we'll be seeing as well, particularly leading up to compliance with, with the SEC public reporting role. Yeah, so I had a management turned to the nominating and governance committee chair and asked her, well, okay, so you tell us what to do with ESG. And her response was, well, I'm happy to supervise, you know, because it goes back to the whole no fingers out, noses in. <laughs> like, I'm happy to supervise, but I do expect management to come up with a, with a plan and, and to do this and to present it to me so that I as a board member can review. And that involves management and going and working with us and the consultants. So um, as to how much level of detail the boards get involved. And I do think the other thing we could bring up is the fiduciary duty point. You know, this is a risk to the extent people have value that they think is imputed because of a person's ESG policies. You know, think about Volkswagen. This was before 
the rules, you know, missing the emissions and things like that, that affects shareholder value. And anything that affects shareholder value, the directors have an obligation to supervise. And so while they don't have to do the details, they have to supervise. In terms of like structuring, like, you know, board responsibility versus management responsibility, some of like the broad brush points I usually hit are, you know, certainly what you said, you know, developing an ESG program, setting a strategy that's typically looked at as like a hub and spoke, right? Same as us, like company, depending on where they are in their lifespan, you know, may have someone responsible for DEI, they may have somebody responsible for emissions. It's like, there has to be somebody coordinating that or a function coordinating that. And then the last point, and we, we see this consistently now, at least in the big public companies, is that there's a responsible corporate officer. So it might be the general counsel, it might be a trust officer, it might be the CFO, it might be somebody else given their expertise and background, but there is a responsible corporate officer for it who reports to the board regularly. Thank you, guys. This has been great. Thank you for our listeners. Uh, for the Mint's podcast series, In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth Stage Companies. This has been a really enlightening discussion on ESG in the boardroom. And I want to thank my colleagues, Tom Burton, Melanie Levy, and Kristen Noeth for joining me today in this discussion. We look forward to hearing from you if you want to investigate how better to build ESG into what you're doing in the boardroom and outside the boardroom. Thanks again for joining the Mint's in the Boardroom podcast series. Thank you.